few guys are really us, what number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! Hello and welcome to episode 100 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and yes, for me this is a huge occasion. When I set out to do this podcast and I knew it was just going to be me doing one-on-one interviews, I never thought we'd get to the big 100 but here we are and you know what? I feel like I've just fallen in love with the podcast all over again. Behind the scenes right now, it's absolutely manic with so many interviews happening. And I can tell you now, there's going to be more and more coming your way very, very soon. But episode 100, it had to be a big guest for me. It had to be an interview that I was so proud of, and it doesn't get better than this. I've been doing interviews now for this podcast for four years and can safely say I've saved this one for a reason. There's a whole reason I wanted this to be the big 100 and it's truly because it's my favourite interview that I've done so far on this podcast. It's also my favourite guest and I love it from start to finish so I'm so proud to announce that on today's episode I'm going to be joined by Ed Solomon. This interview is all about Bill and Ted, all about his career and I don't want to give too much away because it goes completely in different directions and it really does... I don't want to spoil it. I'm actually not going to say any more. What I am going to do is touch base about the last episode. So keeping in with the whole Bill and Ted, I was joined by Alex Winter. It was my most downloaded episode that I've ever done. The response was huge and a big thanks to Alex for tweeting it out and pulling it out on Instagram. The traffic was huge after the couple of days of it being released. So I'm so grateful for everyone that's tuned in, listened and sent me some feedback about how much they loved it. It's been absolutely massive for Mark and me. So thank you. Thank you so much, Alex Winter. But let's get into today's episode. Like I said, it's the big 100. It's a huge moment for me and a huge moment for the podcast. So let's get straight to it. Here is me and Ed Solomon. Ed, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to finally be able to do this with you. Yeah, it's nice. I know it's took over a year to happen, but I think it's, uh, it's been a crazy year for you, but we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, what I want to do for the listeners that are tuning in today and hearing Ed Solomon for the first time uh, is take it back to the start and when you were growing up. What was it about film that made you fall in love with films? Can you remember a certain actor or uh, maybe a franchise or a certain film that made you think, I love film? Initially, all my friends growing up had all this talent and I didn't know what mine would be. And I thought, well, maybe I could be the writer because I like writing and I like comedy. And I always laugh at stuff. And my dad and I used to watch Woody Allen movies and Mel Brooks movies and then Monty Python. Nice. And yeah, Woody Allen was probably the first person in you know in comedy that I went I went from I remember my dad going remember that guy that guy we saw from that movie that we liked we saw that movie <laughs> at the play seriously like that at the at the um at the shopping center you know <laughs> yeah he's got another one he said and he had been talking about we had seen take the money and run and we, he was talking about sleep I think 
And what what if we uh, what if we went? What if we went and go and went and saw that? And I was like, yeah, let's go. And me and him and my friend Brian, we went. We saw Sleeper, and then I was like, okay, this is that. His name is Woody Allen, and I was in my you know early teens, and along that same line, there was Mel Brooks doing Blazing Saddles, and I remember going to Blazing Saddles and being blown away. And of course, I was thirteen, so I was blown away by the farting scene. Of course, <laughs> yeah, and literally fell off my chair laughing. And went back to that theater probably eight or 10 times, you know, paid the money, went in to see the movie. So it was those, it was Woody Allen, Mel Brooks that made me go, God, if I could create that response in people, that would be amazing. And then in same time, middle school, junior high, we called it, same basic age, I wrote a skit. And that skit, me and a couple friends wrote this skit. And that skit got giant laughs. It was a conglomeration of commercials, I remember. We blended a bunch of current television commercials together into a skit. It got such huge laughs that I had to go step outside afterwards and sit down in the hallway of the junior high school and take in what that feeling was of that laughter, like actually process what that felt like. So around then I thought, God, I wish I could do that. And then came high school. And as I said, a second ago, I had all these super talented friends. Yeah. And they all had real talent. And I didn't, think I did. I thought my only quote talent is maybe I can write. So I decided I'll be the writer slash comedian of the group. And it took me quite a few years to validate that. And when I say quite a few years, I mean quite a few decades. <laughs> I, I always attributed it to insecurity as opposed to passion. But when I think back on it, going back even further to like eight years old, 10 years old at camp, I remember wanting to write skits in camp. I remember that. I remember cutting up Mad Magazine pieces, you know, and, and, re and, and uh, pasting them together and then adding stuff to them. I remember in high school having papers due and I would often write them in as little skits or as little plays. In college, I had a physics paper that I called Ptolemy versus Godzilla and I wrote it as a play and I included the professor in the play and he, in the play, he gave me an A of course. Um, and I just, so I think that I always kind of wanted to be doing that. I just never thought you could really make a living at it. And that's why when I went to UCLA, when I was 18, I, well, I took a stab at being a comedian on my first weekend down in Los Angeles, went to open mic night at wow. the comedy store and did that's a bunch brave. of jokes. That's very brave. Well, you know, I didn't really know what it was. I didn't know what it took. I didn't know what it meant. But I had written jokes in high school because I had, by that time I was doing jokes. By the time I graduated high school, I was like the school comedian and all that crap, you know? And I was, I did the morning announcements and I used to always throw jokes in. And I hosted the variety show senior year and I wrote a bunch of jokes for it. And I did it like stand up between each set, each, each other performance. I would do a few jokes and then introduce the next act. And got down on my 18th birthday, which is almost, which is almost 42 years ago, next month. Wow. Yeah, crazy. Got down to LA to start UCLA. My, my roommate at the time said, hey, you know, there's a comedy store. I'd known him since we were eight years old, this guy, my friend. Old yeah. friend. There's a comedy store down the street in Westwood. They do open mic on Mondays. So that Monday... I took those jokes that I had done in the high school variety show, 
went to the comedy store, waited in line and knew nothing of it, knew not, knew, knew better. And because of that, I, I happened to get a good time. The audience was very primed. I stepped on stage. I did these jokes. It went incredibly well. I thought, okay, I'm going to drop out of school, going to become a comedian. I guess I don't have to go to college. Now I know what I want to do. I invited <laughs> everyone I knew who was at UCLA who had gone to my high school, and there was like 20 of them, to come the next week to the comedy store. I, I probably don't need to tell you where this story is going. We'll figure <laughs> it out. It was a fluke that my set went so well the first night. It was right. a miracle of obliviousness and a primed audience. I got that first joke up on the second week. I could, it, no laughs. It was painful. It was that feeling where you can almost feel the words come out of your mouth and drop on the floor in front of you with a thud. Surrender. I, I felt worse for the friends that came with me because they had to walk back with me for a mile or half a mile <laughs> or whatever it was. We're not with him. We're not with him. We don't know him. <laughs> I know. They, I don't blame them. I, like, I felt so bad for them more than I felt for myself. I felt total shame for myself. And I decided, okay, that's it. No more. No more comedy, no more writing. And I became an econ major and I dove into my studies. And it wasn't until a year later that a girl that I had a crush on in high school named Lisa was touring UCLA and I was showing her around and her parents wanted to go to the comedy store. And I was like, I can't go. I can't go. Cause they'll remember <laughs> I'm banned. <laughs> I'm banned from there from bomb that night, an open mic night with the 300 others doing two minutes each, you know. But because it was a girl and because I was completely insecure and because I was uh, basically weak, I went, of course I will. I walked in and of course nobody, not only did nobody remember me, of course, you know. And I saw the comedians performing and I thought, I wonder seriously if I could write that stuff. And I overheard a comedian saying that Jimmy Walker, who was a comic actor at the, who was kind of well known in the 70s, yeah. was on a TV show called Good Times. I'd heard that he was looking for writers, he was performing that night after he performed. I went into the green room. I was like, excuse me, I heard you're looking for writers. He says, we're always looking for writers. And he pats me on the head, gives me a phone number and an address. And I mail that night. I type up a bunch of jokes, some new ones, some old ones, mailed them in. Like a week or two later, I got a, a letter and a check for a hundred bucks. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was November something, November 11th, I think, or 13th, 1979. That's decent at that time. You must be like, wow, $100. Yeah, normally it was 25 bucks a joke, but they bought two jokes for 50 each, and they said, we want to encourage you to keep writing. So I was like, okay. So I started writing jokes for him and a couple other comedians, and I joined up this group at UCLA. Now I had this different confidence, and I joined this group at UCLA called the UCLA Comedy Club, where still some of my closest friends to this day I met. Uh, Another guy, uh, Shane Black, the, the screenwriter, he, he was in the UCLA Comedy Club. He's a genius. Oh, he's brilliant. He's, I think, yeah. might be one of the most raw, talented, raw, you know, in terms of just pure raw talent, one of maybe the, among, if not the most talented people I've ever known. Um, I love you know, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It's one of my favorite films. It's terrific. And I just watched The Nice Guys the other day. Actually. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, um, I was... Uh, uh, yeah, I wanted to see it for a few different reasons and uh, hadn't seen it. So, and it was wonderful. I mean, really so much talent that, that Shane has. Um, anyway, long story short or long story, slightly less long. I, uh, <laughs> I joined this comedy club, met a lot of friends, did stand up. One of our comedian, we, 
the way the comedy club worked was a series of students did seven minute sets, like maybe seven or eight people. And then a professional headliner did an hour. We paid that headliner 50 bucks. Yeah. They performed one day, like uh, Gary Shanling was our headliner and it was like March now, 1980. And after he watched my set and he asked me if I'd be interested in, in writing with him. So after his set that night, we went to the Good Earth in Westwood, a little a restaurant, a health food restaurant in Westwood, which is part of Los Angeles. And we started writing jokes. And ironically, Albert Brooks was there too, sitting at a table, funnily enough, who I hadn't met. Um, and I started writing for Gary. And then about a year later, maybe two years later, two years later, I was a senior in college. Gary introduced me to a TV producer who came to see a play. Now, by now I had been writing plays at UCLA as well. Yeah. I'm still an economics major. Uh, I wanted to take screenwriting classes, but because I wasn't a film major, I wasn't allowed into any film classes. Oh, okay. They wouldn't let you do any of the modules or anything, no. Nothing, nothing. Oh. I kept getting kicked out. And then uh, I was able to take playwriting. So I took playwriting class. This guy, Mark Sotkin, who is the man who I credit with, well, he gave me my first real job. Gary was a kind of mentor to me, but Gary introduced me to Mark. Mark came to a play that I wrote called Strip Joint and hired me to be on staff of Laverne and Shirley as a, as a staff writer. And that was the thing my senior year that got that whole thing started. So really like, how was it when you obviously went off to study and then you're telling your parents that you might not do it and you want to become a comedian? Were they like, what the fuck are you doing? Or were they like, okay, we believe in you, son. As long as you can do it, we'll do this. Fortunately, the turnaround between I'm dropping out of college to, oh my God, I'm dropping out of comedy and really committing to college <laughs> uh, was so short that I probably didn't even speak to my parents in that one week window. Remember, we, the phone call was like once a week. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so maybe I probably called them on Sunday or something, but <laughs> I don't think I broke it to them. That would be the worst know. phone call to have to try and make. I know. Right. Oh God. Uh, but you know, my parents were always have been do what you believe in type of, you know, there was a time when I really was struggling in college, like really struggling emotionally and psychologically. And I was putting so much pressure on myself to get great grades and do all this yeah. stuff. And my parents were like, you don't have to do this. You know, you can, if this isn't what you want to do, you, there's no, nobody telling you you've got to do this, you know. That's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's the early 80s now and you're working. How is it going? Are you still thinking to yourself, how am I going to make a career out of this? Or are you kind of delving into different areas? How's your kind of future looking at that point? The Laverne and Shirley experience was really, really tough for me. That was my yeah. first TV show. I went from being a student yeah. Selling jokes for 25 bucks a pop or sitting with a comedian, usually for, I don't remember what I would charge, but like for an hour or two hours and go through their set with them and then kind of punch up their set a little bit here and there. I went from doing that at my own schedule, writing a joke or two a day of any value or less. You know, maybe you'd write a hundred jokes in a week and five or 10 are decent and three are really good and one is great. You know, me, yeah. if you're lucky, for me at least. I don't have the kind of sense of humor that a lot of the people I ended up working with over the years have, where they can just pull great jokes out of the air like magic, which is a miracle to behold. It's, yeah. it's a wondrous and joyful thing to see, but I don't have that skill. I went from writing these jokes. 
at my own schedule in the dorms or walking around Westwood whenever I could to suddenly driving to Paramount Studios at 21 years old, getting in a room with professional comedy writers and having to deliver. And that was hard. It was hard emotionally. I wasn't really ready for it. In most of the jobs I've had, I had up until not that long ago, I I haven't been that ready for it, honestly. And I try to keep myself now, now that I've been doing it, well, shit, we talked about, it was 1979 that I got my first writer. That would make, that would make six decades that I've been (laughs) writing in. I mean, I'm I'm only, I'm not quite 60 all month, but I mean, it's a bit of a, definitional thing because it was the end of the 70s and now it's the 2020s but I've been doing it a long time and I've never felt never felt like I really had a handle on what I'm doing you know and I don't think I want to until I'm done but it was really hard being in that room with those professionals and it fried me and I wasn't great at it I was okay I was okay so I wasn't hired right away on another tv show thank god had I been, I think I would have been swallowed up by the 80s Los Angeles comedy culture, probably cocaine, probably who knows what <laughs> drugs. No, I'm not kidding. No, all yeah. people, they were all doing it then. I was oblivious to it, thank God, because yeah. knowing my personality, had I gotten into it, it might have destroyed me, honestly. And be, because I didn't get hired right away on another TV show, I had to scramble. Uh, I had to go back to doing stand-up. I had to start trying to write for, I wrote for a few game shows. I wrote a couple plays again and I ran out of money. Yeah. And my parents were, gave me $5,000 to, you know, to tide me over. Yeah. And I, while I applied to graduate school and thought I'm, a, I'm the worst nightmare, I'm a flash in the pan. And my friend Chris Matheson and I had been doing this improv together where we, we were just working out without an audience, just trying to push ourselves to be funny and make each other laugh. Me and Chris and, and three other really good friends of ours rented a stage and were just performing just to, to push. And we came up with the Bill and Ted characters at some point, I think in 83, early 83. And we just fucked around doing them for like a year. Um, and, it one, and one day we said, what if we put them in a movie? What if we tried to write something like a screenplay? Because my agents were trying to get me to write a spec script, write a spec script. And I wrote a spec script and was getting some meetings on it. And they liked it. They liked it. I don't think it was very good. In fact, I've looked back at it and it's not very good. But we, Chris and I ended up writing, putting Bill and Ted into a screenplay, brought it to my agents who signed me when I got the Laverne and Shirley gig. My agents resoundedly hated it, the Bill and Ted script, refused to send it out. Wow. I, I drove to the agency with Chris. He stays in the parking lot. I go upstairs to make this big rallying speech, you know. Um, if you don't believe in me, <laughs> maybe you're not the right agents for me. And they went, well, maybe we're not. <laughs> and, oh, and that was it. So fortunately, this other agent, a guy named David Greenblatt, had read no, had not read the script, had been willing to sign me back when I got Laverne and Shirley. I called him. It was about a year and a half later, two years. No, three years later. Wow. We'd, we kept in touch. Yeah. Called and I said, hey, would you be interested in reading the script? He said, sure. He loved it. And within two months, uh, we had a new agent and the script got optioned to Interscope 
which became the producers of Bill and Ted. And Chris and I shared $5,000 as an option and $15,000 as a rewrite fee. Uh, uh, we rewrote the script, got, it got set up at Warner Brothers and thus began that journey. Um, and we wrote together as partners for a few years and then we decided to both write as partners and separate. And that's what happened. Did you pay your parents back? <laughs> oh yeah, I always did. In fact, I ended up paying, for, I, I thought I was doing so well, you know, I was paying for college myself by my second year. And I thought this is great, you know? I mean, it was UCLA and it didn't cost that much at the time, but it, still I was making the expenses and paying for it by selling jokes and writing. And then when I got Laverne and Shirley, I, I paid off all my college debt, but it ran out and I thought it was over. And had I, had I succeeded, I don't think I'd have the career. Had I succeeded at the Laverne and Shirley gig and gone on to the next logical progression of steps, I wouldn't have written Bill and Ted and I probably wouldn't be working right now. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you were quite insecure. I've heard that word mentioned a few times and you, you know, didn't believe in yourself and you weren't ever thinking that you were going to be a comedian or you would be good enough as a writer and you're very nervous. Surely when you saw the response to Bill and Ted, you must have started thinking, okay, I've got something here. This is not just, you know, a couple of people. It's a huge response where everyone is loving these characters. Well, let me clarify. First of all, I think I am insecure. Yeah. But I also think I'm not. And some of it is a stance I think I take purposefully on because I'm afraid if I don't, I'll cease to continue to grow. Yeah. And that to me is equivalent to death, especially in a field where the median life expectancy for a screenwriter's career is eight years, I believe, according to the Writers Guild. So how frightening is that? Eight years. Yeah. Me, it, meaning half the people work less than that and half meet work longer than that. It's have careers, half of screenwriters who have writing careers. Yeah. You know, a lot fall away. And I've done a lot of thinking, as you can imagine, about how do I not fall away? Yeah. But also, I've had so many failures that I've had to really look at myself and go, where, where was I responsible and where was I not responsible? Because if I don't take honest assessment of myself, take an honest assessment of myself, I won't really know what to do differently next time. And I think, again, I attribute the fact that I've thankfully had a long career and hopefully we'll have a, a longer career going forward. Hopefully I'm doing the best work I've ever done. I feel like I might be. And hopefully 10 years from now, I can say the same thing. I attribute that to a lot of very painful failures uh, and some, you know, some <laughs> painful successes. Um, but yes, am I insecure? Yeah, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. I actually think it's about how can I be insecure without being self-indulgent? How yeah. can I be the healthy kind of insecure? How can I have the perfect balance between confidence and lack of confidence so that it's a healthy exchange as opposed to, you know, ridden with anxiety and can't move forward, that kind of insecurity. Well, that sucks. Yeah. But I've seen so many of my friends fall off the path just because they get cocky or they get jaded or they get cynical or they get defensive or they just don't want to deal with the pain anymore. 
because it's really painful to to keep getting rejected to keep failing because writing is mostly failing it's almost all failing and it's just what is your relationship to the failure and how do you know when to stop and how to keep going i mean it's failing every day i didn't get the scene right yet i haven't finished the script yet i haven't quite solved the problem and every project has a different length of time to it so there's no definitive well this is a three-month process and so you're in month two and a quarter yeah it's much more complex than that it's just not right yet it's just not right yet or you think it's right you give it to people to read and it's just not quite working yet that's dealing with failure every day then it goes out and sometimes it gets rejected or sometimes it gets you get mostly you get a ton of notes most doesn't go the way most don't go the way you want most are some kind of disappointment so how do you manage that and continue forward how do you con how do you get bad reviews and continue forward you asked about bill and ted the reviews for that movie were horrible when it first came out yeah it was and i thought i thought no i didn't think i must have something no i thought the critics must be right i my deep fear about myself must be right because what i thought were smart people in hindsight, I have a different view of, you know, critical writing, film criticism. Of course, yeah. There are, there are some wonderful critics, wonderful film critics, but I now have more context for it all. Yeah. Um, not everyone is a great film critic, just like not everyone's a good writer, you know. Um, I, uh, I didn't feel great about it, but then the movie caught on a little better than we expected. And audiences liked it. And I remember my good friend, Michael Singer, who came to opening night, which was the last time I saw the movie up until not long ago, put his arm around me and Chris and said, well, the audience has spoken. And I remember thinking, I appreciate that. You know, I appreciate hearing that. But at the time, Bill and Ted was perceived as a piffle written by idiots about idiots. And Bill and Ted aren't actually idiots. No. It, might have, it might have been written by idiots, but that doesn't make them idiots. But at the time, it wasn't perceived as anything other than a silly, stupid teen comedy. And it wasn't until the sequel that critics went, oh, maybe we were a little bit wrong about the first one. But it really wasn't until 20 years later, 15 years later. It wasn't until the, like the 2000s, 2004, 2005, 2006, that we started really hearing about people wanting a third movie that Keanu started getting asked everywhere he went, are you doing another Bill and Ted that I started to understand that this, there was this strange, almost un, almost like a subculture, almost like a, re, a quiet revolution. Yeah. People who were really embracing this movie and it grew in public consciousness over that last 30 years in ways that I never would have expected. So the answer though, that's the long answer to no, it didn't make me feel good about myself when it came out. It made me feel, uh, confirm my, my, my fears yeah. about myself as a writer. I've, I've felt that way constantly. Like, I'm just not sure I know what I'm doing. I'm just not sure I know how to write this. And, but I find that that usually helps me. I find it works for me to keep that attitude. So how do, and this is probably with life, not just 
the part of your career when you're writing, but how do you find the inner strength to keep bouncing back? Because if I put out a podcast and someone says, oh, that was wank, I hated it. I take that so, so badly to heart. And if I have 20 people saying it's the best interview they've ever heard, all I'll focus on is that person who I've never met who lives in North Carolina who sent me a message saying I hated it. And I really struggled to bounce back. I struggled to go, oh, am I awful? Have I done this right? Should I have not released it? And I beat myself up. How do you keep on a daily basis getting told that's not right, this needs to change, that isn't quite there, to then producing the gold that then keeps you going? That's a great question. And I don't really know the answer yet. I do know, I realized earlier this year, so not long ago, yeah. that when I tell myself they can all go fuck off, I know what I'm doing and I'm a good writer, that'll be the day my career is over. So I'm going to hold off until that day. The day I decide to stop writing, the day I, the day I decide to retire, or perhaps on my deathbed, yeah. I'm going to tell myself they can all go fuck off and I'm good right. <laughs> but until then, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to manage my response to those types of people somehow so that I can use it when it's helpful to me and disregard it when it will not be helpful to me. I don't read reviews anyway, good or bad. But I've never been in social media like I am now. I mean now on Twitter I'm very active on Twitter, so I'm very upfront and forward on the film in a way that I haven't been in the past. So I might be more susceptible to those types of people that you can call them trolls or you can just say they're speaking the truth. There yeah. is something somewhat aggressive about that. So like you, if there's 20 good reviews and one negative one, or, or I'm just reading comments on a feed and it's 20 or great, I saw the movie and I loved it. And one person's like, I was a piece of shit, you suck. You know, It's yeah. hard not to just hear that and focus on that. So what do you do? For me, I don't know why I would constantly keep going when I had I mean, the rejections. Maybe it's because I just didn't want those rejections to be proven right. Yeah. Maybe I had a certain amount, this is where the confidence versus insecurity thing comes in. Maybe I had a certain amount of belief at the end of the day that I could make this work. And there's two different methodologies. They're cousins to each other. One is a methodology of dealing with public opinion. And one is the methodology with, of dealing with your own private opinion. Yeah. When you're writing, the failures are more private because it's just not working yet. It's just not working yet. Crap. How do I keep going? That to me is less about confidence and more about faith. Like, it's not here, but I believe I can get it there if I keep pushing. If I, and then that involves a whole bunch of things that you have to teach yourself, craft-oriented things like how do I assess what's working and not working? How do I best break through this problem? How do I know when to step back and ask different questions? How do I know what the right questions are? All that stuff that you learn as you go, you know, and you spend years and decades trying to get better at, assuming you're dedicated to getting better yeah. and not and not plateauing. And that's a crucial, crucial, crucial distinction. So that's the private. To me, that's more about having faith, not having confidence. You can have insecurity and faith and do just fine. 
It's cockiness that'll kill you. It's overconfidence that will kill you. The time to have confidence, by the way, as a writer is when you're trying to sell something or you're talking about your story to someone. Yeah. And you need to have not brag, braggadocio, but just quiet confidence. That kind of confidence that you perceive in another person when they don't have to act confident. Yeah. You know, the non-Donald Trump type of confidence. You know, the, the confidence that is a quiet sense of reserve that makes you go, oh, they might know something. There's no sense of arrogance at all. No, it's, yeah. it's a deep-seated confidence. So when you're talking about your story, like when you're trying to sell it or pitch it or whatever, there's that. But for the most part, as a writer, I think it's insecurity plus faith. That's the part that works for me. But on the, the other part of it, which is dealing with public failure, that's painful. And the only way I was able to deal with it and am able to deal with it, and I'm going to have to figure out a strategy to keep dealing with it is to have some sort of strange distended relationship, dispassionate, distant relationship with the idea of whoever the public me is, the person who has his name on the credit, that's like me. It, he and I worked on similar projects, sometimes exactly the same projects. Yeah. He's the one who has the credit and he's the one who gets the blame. And I let him go out in the world and he is just a projection of me. So he doesn't feel anything and he just deals with it. And I try to pay no attention to the things I have no control over like that. I try, trust me it's hard. It's not like I'm able to, but I try to just go, yeah, I got an IMDb list. Some of those movies I'm fully responsible for good and bad. Some of those movies I'm half responsible for good and bad. And some of those movies I'm not responsible at all for good and bad. And I try to know what, what can I do next time to learn from this and be a better writer? So if that one troll out of 20 says this is shit and I hate it and it was stupid from beginning to end well there's nothing really to learn from that but if somebody says I got bored halfway through and I stopped watching it I go all right valid interesting worth noting you know uh it's just how do you optimize always how do you how do you honestly look at yourself This is true about getting notes on your script and as well as looking at your own career. How do you look at yourself honestly and manage yourself correctly? Manage the factory in your brain or whatever you want to call it and then manage the person that is moving through this career. How do you give the best advice to yourself? How do you, to me, the biggest challenge is how do you know how to assess things? How do you know to ask the right questions? Just not just about your career, but specifically about the thing you're working on at any given moment. How do I know how to rewrite something? Well, I have to know what I'm looking for. What am I trying to change? Why am I trying to change it? What are the right, what's the right diagnosis before I pronounce it a cure to the problems I'm having? That's a tricky one. And it's taken me my whole career to figure out. And I think it's going to continue to take the rest of my career. And I'll let you know on my deathbed, call me on my deathbed and I'll have all the answers. Yeah, because my next question was, is do you think you'll ever have the answer? I'm going to give it to me on the deathbed. I'm going to just go, all right, you know what? Here's the answer. And the answer was, none of it mattered, did it? (laughs) Here you are. Your deathbed's going to be a busy day. You're going to be tweeting everyone, telling them they're all fucking idiots. 
finish up all these yeah. podcasts, you know, that I started and said I'll be done with it in, let's say, 45 years. <laughs> I hope. So we've talked, obviously, about Bill and Ted, and a lot of people will be listening to the podcast today knowing that finally, after all the people going up to Keanu Reeves, uh, Alex Winter saying, when can we get these characters back? As a fan of the films, it felt like it would never happen. I felt like everyone was talking about it, and for years it was like, oh, it's going to happen, and it doesn't, and it's going to be greenlit, and it doesn't. As we sit here right now, it's a couple of weeks away. How did it finally get the green light for you in the point where you weren't just thinking about ideas and it became a reality of this is actually going to happen now? It wasn't until we started shooting. I really believed it because it fell apart so many times leading up to shooting. I don't know if people know how treacherous it was and how almost, or how much of a reality it was that it just almost didn't happen. Yeah. Part many times in prep, we lost a giant. We lost our major uh, financier. There are three people that I want to call out right now. That honestly, the movie would not happen without them. One is Patrick Dugan, an incredible guy. I really love him. He um, he is one of our two main financiers. Him and David Herring, another wonderful man who, for no reason, stepped up i mean maybe they believed in the movie maybe they believed who knows did they believe in the financial upside i hope so and i hope they get rich as hell from it because we sure as hell aren't but they stepped up in a giant way when our financing fell through and saved us a few other people did too we all did things like we put money back we were all getting like a very small percentage of our normal salary for this movie we still put a lot of that back in me chris matheson the other producers Alex and Keanu, a bunch of us just gave up more money to try to keep the movie alive. And the third person I wanted to mention is uh, one of our producers, Alex Leibovich, who arranged the financing for the film. He really put himself against, up against the gun and fought and fought and fought and fought and got us funded when we thought we were done. And the thing that was hardest for me on this one was the feeling that I was letting down fans, the feeling that, like you said, that, that there were people who actually cared. When we first wrote this movie and even the second movie, we knew most people didn't give a shit. We knew most people. Well, when we wrote the first movie, no one gave a shit. Period. <laughs> Nobody cared. Nobody cared. We're just us writing a spec script. The second movie, yeah, there was a sequel and there were fans of the first movie, but it wasn't like it is now. Even though the first movie was successful, it wasn't that successful. No. So now is different. Now there's all this visibility and you have people that have been waiting a long time. And at the end of the day, hey man, it's just a movie. It's a silly, absurd movie made from the heart, for sure. Made for the right reasons, yeah. for sure. Uncynical, wholesome, amazingly, weirdly for this time. Sweet. But it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's a diversion. It's a film. You know, I just, and so my fear has always been, will the people for whom this movie means so much feel like we honored their patience and their uh, fandom and their support, you know? And when the movie was falling apart, I thought, how am I going to face these folks? I mean, I felt bad for us. We've been working for a decade and a half as well. 
but for some reason I felt more of an like a, a obligation is the wrong word, but like a duty to them to do the best I could to get it made. Yeah. Again, who knows? They, you know, who knows what people will think. It's a very different feeling now. And now my job is to just manage my own feelings going forward, which is there's nothing I can do anymore about this movie. I can't change the scene. There's no dialogue to rewrite. There's no structure changes that need to happen. It is what it is. The dream is over. It's a reality. The movie is the movie. And people will make of it what they make of it. And I hope they like it because it's meant to, you know, it's it's because that's why we made it. But at the same time, the most important thing is, do we like it? And I think we're all really proud of it. So then it's like, will the people for whom this movie is made like it? And that's my hope. But you never know. And obviously with all the world going insane with the COVID and everything, it's now going to go on to video on demand and be available in some cinemas, which kind of is a bit of a shame because we've waited all these years and everyone just wants to go with their friends who grew up watching the, uh, the original and the sequel. And it just feels like a momentous occasion to finally go and see the third Bill and Ted. And now it's like, Oh, we're going to sit in our pants and watch it at home. Well, I know, I know. And there's, we were trying to figure out what's the best balance. Of course we, I'm the writer, I'm a producer too, but I have nothing to do with no. how the distributed and when and stuff but you know they would consult with us sometimes and i was trying to figure out what do i personally think is the best we obviously don't want people being endangered we also felt like this is the time for this movie not just because people know about it and are ready for it but it's such a messed up world right now yeah and this is a movie you can watch with your family it's about family it's about you know being it's really about being a parent honestly and it's about uh, what do you want to leave on this planet? What's the mark you really want to make? And because so many of the people who know Bill and Ted didn't see it in a theater, to be honest, most of the people saw it on video. Yeah. Later. So I don't know. Is it maybe I'm just trying to talk myself into the fact that this isn't such a bad thing to not really being seeing it in theaters. Cause let's be honest, most people aren't going to see it in the theater, even though it's in some theaters, but we thought this was the best solution. Release it in theaters and VOD. So people can choose if they want to see it in the theater. The irony is it's probably got the best production value of all the films. It's probably of the three films, the one most <laughs> desirable in a theater in a certain way. However, most people's viewing situations now are so much better than they were when yeah. people were watching excellent adventure on a VHS, you know, that I don't think it's going to be that bad of an experience. I think it's going to be an equivalent experience watching at home. Honestly, I really don't. I think, I think the the comment you made about the timing, it's like, if anyone can save 2020, it's going to be Bill and Ted because everything <laughs> is going to shit. And that's a nice feeling that, well, actually every other film I've thought about has now been delayed till next year. Um, Christopher Nolan's releasing his latest only in the cinema. So you're like, Oh, do I want to risk my life to go and watch the new one? Or do I not? At least with this, you can get the film you've been waiting for. And it's going to be a feel-good film where I'm going to be happy and be like, ah, oh, this feels great. And this is what we need right now. We don't need any more gloom or shite, do we? This is not a gloomy film. Now, it is gloomy for Bill and Ted for a fair amount of the film. Because, yeah. as you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying anything that will spoil anything because it's a bit in the trailers. But 
basically life hasn't worked out for them. No. They've been dealing with disappointment. They were told they have this destiny. It hasn't happened. They've got two kids. They're married. They're working on their marriage. They're working on being better parents. They don't have a lot of money. And they were flashes in the pan, kind of like we were talking about at the beginning of your podcast. You know, they, they hit it huge right away and it fell away. And now someone from the future shows up and says, hey, where is it? What are you going to do about it? Because if it doesn't happen now, tonight, it's never going to happen. And the guys, again, this is part of the trailer, so I'm not giving it yeah, away. No, they go, yeah, spoiler free. Yeah, well, they basically go, well, we know we must have written it because the future told us we wrote it. We just must not have written it yet. What if we go into the future to when we have written it and steal it from ourselves? So the spine of the movie is really Bill and Ted going into the future and visiting, basically trying to steal it from different iterations of themselves and watching their life get progressively crappier and crappier <laughs> along this timeline. And until they sort of figure out the answer for themselves. And that changes everything. And the movie is really about Bill and Ted getting their Bill and Tedness back getting that spirit, getting that joy back once they realize what their life is about. And obviously that's not a movie that an adolescent could have written. Excellent Adventure was a movie that not only an adolescent could write, an adolescent wrote. Me and Chris were basically adolescents when we wrote yeah. that. So it's an adolescent boy fantasy. You'll have a rock band and that rock band will save the world and you'll meet princess babes, you know? Yeah. It's very juvenile. And it, that was where we were at the time. Now we're adults who have had this divorce, in my case, death, in both of our cases, disappointment, career, personal life, you name yeah. it. And the movie is imbued with that feeling. Again, I, I, it's not a heavy film, God no. But everyone, Keanu and Alex have had gigantic disappointment in their life. And that to me makes the performances more interesting to me. It's Bill and Ted, but not Bill and Ted as they were 30 years ago when you last saw them, Bill and Ted as they would be now. Yeah. Had life hit them hard. Again, it's not dreary. It's just different. And my, my hope is that people will embrace that and people won't be wanting to go see a Bill and Ted movie where 55-year-old Keanu and Alex are dressing up and acting like 20-year-old Keanu and Alex. I think that would be pathetic, in my opinion. Well, the, the, the first example I always think of when you've said this is a couple. So to do it badly is Dumb and Dumber. So when we saw Dumb and Dumber 2, it was those guys still being the guys you remember originally. And it just sucked for me. It didn't work. But on the plus side, Kevin Smith did Jay and Silent Bob. And now we see them as adults who have got kids who in real life have had kids and grown up and they're not the stoners that stand outside a shop anymore. And those characters in the latest film are what you'd expect them to be now, who've gone through life, who've had divorce or have had death. And that's good to hear that Bill and Ted aren't just going to be 18-year-olds in 50-year-old bodies going, yeah, dude, excellent, because I wouldn't want that. I don't think anyone wants that. It would feel fake, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, I think just from the feedback I'm getting that there are some people, again, not from people who have seen the movie, but just online, there are some people that don't, Maybe they saw the movie seven years ago. And so in their mind, Keanu, well, maybe would have aged seven years since then. Like there are people that kind of want like excellent adventure version of Alex and Keanu. They're not going to get that. 
they are going to get a real performance that I think is incredibly nuanced and fascinating. And Alex's, he is not acting on, he's been directing and doing incredible work, yeah. but he is excellent in the movie. He is really good. I mean, Keanu is great as well. He's Keanu and he's wonderful, but it's a much different Keanu than people might be expecting. It's, it's a, it's Keanu who he is in life, in the world, having experienced the life he's experienced, revisiting Ted as Ted would be now. Yeah. Which is, you know, he's got a complex inner life. And I think that's fascinating. So, so when, you know, it's, it, by the way, uh, though the themes may be serious, it's a, an absurd movie and it's a comedy and it's ridiculous and it's yeah. silly. It, it's not trying to be anything important um, at all. Uh, Which is what we want. Yeah, it's not, but it is um, the themes of it to us were more serious. The, the treatment of it are, is ridiculous, basically. I mean, it's such a ridiculous assemblage of people. And, you know, it's got a different tone than the first two. The first two have different tones from each other, you know, and they reflect more of where we, me, you know, Chris Matheson and I were and are at any given time and where Alex and Keanu are at any given time. But I think Dean Pariseau did a really great job with the movie. He was a, he's a good friend. We became closer making the movie, which is a, you know, not something that happens always. I've always wanted to work with him. And it was a wonderful, he was the perfect director for it, I thought. And looking forward, obviously, when this movie's out, we're going to get a huge response. Everyone's going to be talking about it. But you've still got stuff like Now You See Me Free. Have you got anything else in the pipeline right now that you've been able to focus on? Or has it all been Bill and Ted and now it's time to kind of have a bit of a rest? Well, um, uh, IMDb is very inaccurate in terms of stuff. I, I'm not involved in Now You See Me 3 uh, at all. Although I know it that I am on IMDb. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, I have a ton of stuff going on. Uh, I have a movie starting September 22nd, I think. Um, it was supposed to start April 1st and on March 20th or so we shut down for COVID. So it's a film noir kind of film, uh, Steven Soderbergh directing with a wow. wonderful cast of uh, just a joy assemblage, like a dream assembly of people. That's supposed to start next month. Hopefully it will start. Hopefully it won't get pushed again. So that I wrote earlier last year in 2019, uh, just before Bill and Ted uh, went into production. And I just finished a movie I wrote for J.J. Abrams. It's like a sci-fi movie, romantic sci-fi thriller. And that's done. And I'm starting a romantic comedy for Netflix this week. Wow. I'm writing. And then I've got another a TV show that I already wrote, which I wrote three years ago. I wrote three and two years. I've been writing for the last few years. Yeah. The first of, and I've finished that. And uh, that's another, coincidentally, a Steven Soderbergh thing that he's directing Theoretically, again, we don't know with the COVID stuff, but if, if everything was normal, he, that would be shooting in the spring of next year. Um, I have a movie I worked on with David O. Russell that I'm very proud of, although David did almost all the writing. I just did more story with David. Um, and I loved working with David. Very interesting guy, different than me in a lot of ways. Learned a ton. So yeah, I have a lot of stuff going. And I'm writing a play, a musical, um, with my friend Chris Dorenzo. So yeah, I've got a lot of stuff going on that I'm really excited about and I'm trying to uh, stay excited. You know, I, I, I have regretted taking jobs that I have 
not been excited about. And I've done it a couple of times in my life, but mostly I haven't. Mostly I've been able to thankfully knock wood, do stuff that I'm excited about, which is why sometimes I work for years for no money, you know, just because it's just what I'm interested in or as long as I can afford to pay my rent. Um, that I, I would choose to be driven by what's creatively interesting as opposed to what's going to pay me the most. And maybe that's also part of why I've stayed working this long is that uh, the projects themselves have driven me forward as opposed to other reasons. And I'm just realizing that as we say this, actually, as, as I say this, as we speak, maybe that has been a lifesaver for me on a, on a career level yeah, uh, in a way, because it's always kept me just out of my own comfort zone, just outside of it, like in my own wheelhouse, but out of my comfort zone so that I can keep striving to achieve a good version of the script, which seems to require a lot of growth every time. So, uh, yeah, so I have a lot of stuff going on, but IMDb, I wouldn't really, yeah, wouldn't really look to that, unfortunately. Well, please never change that mindset because it's working so well. And it's just you reading those things you've got in the, like on a piece of paper right now, JJ Abrams, Steve Soddenberg and stuff. It's like, fucking hell, that's incredible. Like, when do you sleep? <laughs> well, my girlfriend will, uh, will, will, will claim that I work too much, though I will argue that I can barely get a, even a 40-hour work weekend. I'd be lucky to get a 30-hour work weekend because I have so many other things in my life. But I'm trying to like, if I could get a full 40 work hours in every week, just that would be great. But uh, part of it is because I've been doing this for a long time. And a lot of these are projects that overlapped, you know, like, yeah. like Full Circle, which is the TV show that I'm talking about. Well, I wrote that three summers ago, all the way up until two years ago, and then rewrote the JJ thing. I've been working on and off for a few years. And this is just another draft that I finished. Like... So it's not like I'm doing seven things at one time. It's like I, there's one thing that I always am doing that's prime and I might be attending to other parts of something in a little bit. And I've learned how to do that better and to, to not get stressed by that, but rather use one to be the vacation from the other and vice versa. But the thing I want to really say is to hear you mouth those words makes me have to go, yeah, fuck, he's right. It's a good thing. I've gotten myself to a place that I'm, you know, at least can consider myself a professional writer now. And it's up to me for the next 10, 15 years to keep upping my game so that I can stay in the game and so that I can make my experience and my age be an asset and not a liability, which is, you know, one of the constant marching orders I have for myself. Don't hide behind your age. Don't pretend you're whatever age a 60-year-old would, I'm not even 60 yet, but I'm almost 60. But don't pretend to be an age that, you know, you think might be more appealing. Don't, don't, don't hide from your failures. In fact, give your failures the credit they might deserve to turning you into the person you are. And to try to, you know, not to try to somehow find the balance between acknowledging the the fact that I'm still working while not getting too self-satisfied with any of it. Like what's the healthy balance in the middle of that? That's what I'm still trying to work out. And it's all 
leading up to that final moment on your deathbed to make it all worthwhile? All of it. I can't tell you how often I actually think about that moment more than I should. Not mostly because of my career, but mostly just personally. Because I'm constantly asking myself that question. What am I going to feel like lying there? Am I going to feel happy? Am I going to feel like I did the best I can do? Am I going to feel like I loved the best way I could that I lived the best way I could? Or am I going to have regrets? And I don't know the answer, but I hope, I hope I feel good about it. I hope I can feel good. I often think about that moment when I have to make a tough decision. Like for instance, when we moved to New York, my daughter and I moved to New York four years ago, four and a half years ago. Well, we had to make the decision quickly. And it was like, we had to, she got into a school and we, yeah. and we had a day to figure out whether she, we could, we we're going to take the spot or not, a uh, high school. And uh, I just remember going, okay, using what I call the 20 year rule, 20 years from now or on your deathbed, which will be later than 20 years from now. It better be. I'm holding you to this mark. <laughs> well, the, the last moment is going to be a live podcast. <laughs> exactly with you so you're right you're right we can usher we'll just usher me out hopefully i'll be i'll be reiterating this point and yeah. i'll be able to confirm this or deny it so we'll find out i'm interested to hear it as well um but i asked myself what will i look back at and be glad i did and what will i look back at and be unhappy what will i regret and that when i was like dude there's no question you got to make the move you gotta you gotta take the shot you gotta do this it was for her it was for her her school thing and i was best decision I ever made to be honest but at the time I, I was trying to weigh it heavily and, and sometimes when I have a tough choice to make I do do that I go when I look back what will I be glad I did that has helped me through some tough tough choices sometimes but again we'll assess this uh, in you name it you'll be around you'll be much healthier than me but I'll be feeble so I'm gonna need you to really follow up on this and also track me I'm gonna I'm gonna um, you know I have I'm sure there's some way that I can hook myself up to some sort of vital signs monitor that I'm going to have a live patch to you from, from the time we finish this podcast yep. going forward into the future. And I'll need you to kind of constantly monitor it. Uh, but the reason is so that you'll know uh, when to contact me yeah. as I'm dying to go live so we can just do that podcast. But you need to come back to me quicker because this one's took a year and a half. And unless That's you... True. You know, that won't work. That won't work this time yeah. uh, going forward. You're totally right. That's why I'm giving you the monitor, though. Yeah. So that you, you can just, in fact, I'll hook it up to my computer or my phone so yeah. that you can automatically commandeer whatever transmission yeah. device you want to then go live with it at that yeah. moment. You'll have all the power to do that. So you want. Well, I've got your phone number now. So it'd be a live FaceTime. You've got to hit reply and answer that call straight away. I'm going to put some kind of malware in my phone so that <laughs> you will have the ability to actually turn it on. Awesome. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to hold you up at all on this one. You know, this one, yeah. you'll have all the control. You also will be able to monitor my whole life. So any thoughts you have in terms of feedback, yeah. uh, what I'm doing wrong, things I'm saying wrong, how I'm, you know, talking to my girlfriend, treating her, uh, things my kids might be telling me, any of that, I'll, I'll be looking forward to hearing your, your comments. Yeah. on an ongoing basis from now going forward in perpetuity. Wow. I'm pretty thrilled that this has led to this. I know it's kind of a surprise, but this is what I love about the magic of human inter interaction. You just don't know where it's going to go. And I think we made a great life plan with each other. I love it. My final question is something that I ask all actors, directors, writers, musicians is 
advice to anybody that is trying to get into the business. Now, I believe this episode has been one big piece of advice. I think if you listen to the whole episode, it's about life, it's about making decisions, coming back from your regrets, bouncing back, having strength, dealing with insecurities. But is there anything else you could add to it for anyone listening now that wants to be the next you or the next big thing or write some of their favorite films in the future? What advice do you give to that person who's listening right now with his pen and paper thinking, I want to be like Ed? First of all, I would say, don't wait and be the next me, be the current me. So take it over. It's yours. <laughs> yeah. But along those lines, I would say, keep making stuff. Just keep making stuff. And don't try to play by other people's rules. Have faith that if you follow your own muse while keeping attuned to what's going on in the outside world, meaning don't live in a bubble of your own creation, but if you follow what you find interesting and you follow it long enough and hard enough, gradually people will start to follow you. But when you start to try to follow them and give them something you think they want or you think they're buying, that's a path toward defeat, in my opinion, for a lot of reasons. Treat people well and with respect. Carve out space for yourself to write both emotional and physical and fight for that space, meaning you got to keep people away. You've got to keep other things away. You've got to carve out the space for you to fail, to play, to discover, and to not necessarily do what you think is work that day. Meaning, give yourself the freedom to explore. And that includes physical space as well as your own emotional space. Figure out how to work with yourself, figure out how to manage yourself so you can get the results you want, or at least get as close as you can to those results. Learn how to think about how you think. Meditation is a good way to do that, but like understand that your job is really thinking about how you think and controlling that and trying to make something out of that or how you feel, which is probably even more than how you think. Get to know yourself, stay in touch with the outside world, read, read, read. I wish I read more. I meant to only say keep making stuff, but you gave me space and I kept talking. So let me just pretend all I said was keep making stuff. You can keep anything in that you want. We'll keep honestly, it's keep making stuff. That's all it is, is just keep making stuff because it's by making stuff that you can then go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And if you are a creative person, any one thing that you're doing becomes just one thing in a long stream of things. It doesn't mean don't work as hard as you can on it because you have to work as hard as you can on it. You have to figure out how to have the healthy relationship with that thing that you would have with yourself or with your partner or with your kids or with your friends. Like how do you know the right emotional closeness and distance to have from the thing you're creating? How do you teach yourself the skills to properly assess? Is this the best I can come up with? 
And now that I've come up with it, is this the best evocation of what it is? What is it saying to the outside world? How are other people perceiving it? What do I need to do to change it? Are they teaching me anything about it? Is my original intention wrong? Should I change the intention? Do I ask new questions? Do, how far back do I have to pull to reassess this? These questions that you ask yourself continuously. Like, try to come up with a methodology so that you have a good relationship with your own creative life. What works for you? And how do you maximize that? Keep making stuff. Keep making stuff. That's it. <laughs> Ed, I'm not just saying this, I'm sure you can tell by my face, but I've been doing these podcasts for nearly four years. This is easily my favorite interview. It's been worth the wait and I just feel inspired. I feel like I can achieve anything. I feel more motivated to do this podcast when sometimes it's hard to bounce back. I can't thank you enough for your time. This is my favorite interview I've done and I'm just absolutely thrilled it's happened. I really appreciate that, Mark. That means a lot to me. And I will add one last thing to that. For the first 15, 20 minutes of this, I thought I was letting you down. Wow. So it's funny how that is. But I really am grateful to hear that. That really means a lot to me. So thank you. I am going to let you get on with your day. I'm going to let you keep writing and stop taking too much time from you because we're going to have a lot to do after today. I need to be planning all this for your big deathbed day. Deathbed, yeah. So let me go and start making some plans and we will speak again soon. Little tip for you. This doesn't serve me, but it serves you. If you kill me, you'll be able to control when the deathbed is. So (laughs) wow, that works for you. Just, you know, I hope you don't, but I'm just telling you, you've got that in your toolbox. Perfect. Thank you. Honestly, this is, I can't express to you how grateful I am. I'm really grateful to hear that, Mark. Thank you. And thanks for your patience through all this. And we'll talk talk again soon. All right. Okay. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Ed Solomon. And as I said at the start of today's interview, I wanted to make sure this guest was going to be someone big. I kept this interview back a few extra weeks because the moment I finished recording it, I knew it should be episode 100. I knew this was my favourite interview that I'd done during this time with Mark and me. And I just knew it was the best work I've done. Ed is an absolutely amazing guest and the advice that he gives on this interview is just absolutely sublime. I'm so grateful for him for giving me this time. And the kind of behind the scenes thing is this interview has took a long time to happen. I think I first had interaction with Ed about 18 months, maybe two years ago, to make this interview happen. But since then we've had obviously the release of Bill and Ted Free which has taken up all his time. But he's still been accommodating and gave me an hour's interview and I'm so so grateful and the wait was definitely worth it. All the guys that have listened today, please let me know what you think of the episode. I love reading the feedback and I make sure that I reply to every single tweet, Facebook comment, email or Instagram DM. If you want to get in contact with Mark and me, the best way to do this is to go on markandme.com. On there, there's links to all the social media and also my Patreon. I can't do this podcast without your support via Patreon. And on there, I offer some prizes that money can't buy. But also you'll get episodes early, you'll get exclusive news, you're going to get some merch in the post, and there's just lots of stuff on there happening. Again, you can go on markandme.com and sign up there for as little as about a dollar or a pound a month. And for that, at the moment, you're getting five or six episodes, an opportunity to win some incredible prizes from people like Last Exit to Nowhere, Digital Suicide Badges, All these great suppliers are getting on board and getting more and more prizes every month. So it really is the best time to jump on board. 
I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Alex Winter for the last episode and helping make this Ed Solomon interview happen for this one. Ed, you are so generous with your time and it's really appreciated. I'll be back in only a few days' time with episode 101. I can't believe we're already there. And a massive thank you for supporting the podcast and everyone listening today. We've done 100 episodes and it's not slowing down anytime soon. I'll be back in a few days with a brand new episode. So until then, take care and I'll speak to you then. It's four in the morning, the end of December I'm writing you now just to see if you're better New York is cold but I like where I'm living There's music on Clinton Street all through the evening I hear that you're building your little house deep in the desert you're living for nothing now i hope you're keeping some kind of record yes and jane came by with a lock of your hair She said that you gave it to her That night that you planned to go clear Did you ever go clear? Oh, the last time we saw you You looked so much older Your famous blue raincoat was torn at the shoulder You'd been to the station to meet every train Then you came home without Lily Marlene And you treated my woman To a flake of your life When she came back She was nobody's wife Well, I see you There with a rose in your teeth One more thin gypsy thief Well, I see James away She sends her regards And what can I tell you, my brother, my killer What can I possibly say I guess that I miss you I guess
guess I forgive you I'm glad you stood in my way If you ever come by here For Jane or for me Well, your enemy is sleeping And his woman is free Yes, and thanks For the trouble you took from her eyes I thought it was there for good So I never tried Sincerely, El Cohen. 